0: This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology
1: at Cornell University. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Doing Translational Research. Um, I am your sometimes host, Chris Wildeman, director of the Bromfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. Um, and today I'm here with Renee Kizelchech which I pronounced correctly three times before this, and I'm sure butchered right now. Um, so you can correct me after I do the broader introduction for you. Um, Renee is an assistant professor in the School of Computing and Information Science here at Cornell, um, where he also directs the Future of Learning Lab. Um, his research is focused on the impact of digital technologies, in formal and informal learning contexts, and scalable interventions to broaden participation, raise academic performance, and reduce achievement gaps. So I understood about a third of that, which means you're going to have to start by explaining sort of what your core research interests are. Um, and another way to think about that is sort of what are the big questions your research tries to answer? There can be multiple different questions. Those Absolutely have to be one. So thanks for coming, by the way. Sorry, I should have said that before.
0: Thanks for having me, and sure. thanks for the introduction. Uh, you got the name exactly right. My my research started off with, uh, with massive open online courses becoming um, a national and an international phenomenon, where suddenly universities that were attainable only to a, f- a small percentage of the population were releasing course materials to, to the world for free online. And this phenomenon captured my attention back in the day when I was getting my PhD at Stanford and understanding what people were doing in those courses, how they were learning, whether the courses were working for them, Uh, is how I started research in this area. That then uh, turned into looking at digital education uh, and digital learning more broadly and how it is becoming more and more important in today's society. Uh, Increases in demand for higher education uh, are undeniable. We see global demand having increased uh, by a factor of uh, two in the last uh, 10, 15 years we're seeing inside even in the us um, because of reskilling needs in the digital economy mm. that there is demand for professional development throughout the career unlike what we've seen in the past where once you're done with school you're done with school and that's where learning basically stopped That's so when it's it stopped for me <laughs> in today's society going back learning more um, and, and developing continuously is, is going to be inevitable because of the nature of the work that people do today. And so that really raises the, uh, the importance of ways of accessing that kind of education that are less obtrusive, that don't require people to go into physical classrooms mm. and to access those, uh, those learning materials on the fly, online, on their phones, which raises the question of how well does it work? Mm. How well can we make it work? And is it working well for all people who need it, or does it happen to work better for for some part of the population than for another part? And that's where those questions come in around uh, achievement gaps, being careful not to perpetuate existing achievement gaps through these technologies that can scale so well because they can reach so many students at the same time and making sure that the the technology is at least as good as what we can do in physical classrooms uh, in providing students with the, with the learning uh, goals, helping them achieve the learning goals that they're looking
1: for. Okay, great. So uh, let me, so these are called MOOCs sometimes, right? The this massive is, online mm-hmm. courses. Um, so how, I guess, can, can you just explain, so to people who are old and naive like me, um, how, how do these look on the faculty end? Mm-hmm. And then what's the, what's the sort of range of what these classes would look like on the student end? Right. You can I- imagine
0: them just like uh, the course materials that would be provided to a student who's taking any college course. There's readings. There are videos that are recorded by an instructor, typically. There are assessments that uh, tend to be auto-graded. So mm. you, you complete them, and you get a grade pretty quickly. Uh, sometimes there's peer grading. If you write essays, for example, peers might grade your essays. And so your grade comes through, uh, and your feedback comes from peers. Um, and, and, and then there is a lot of variation across what can be done. For example, simulations can be embedded in these courses. If you taking mm. a course in physics, you don't have access to a physics lab or a chemistry lab. Um, you can simulate in a much safer space sure. where you can click a button and reset your lab. You yep. don't need to clean up the entire lab um, and learn that way. So it, it really leverages uh, different technological features, brings them together in one environment and provides this this wholesome learning experience. That's that's where Massive Open Online Courses started, uh, and, and they really were a starting point. Um, and the insights that we can gain from what worked there and how people engaged in those, apply in other online learning environments mm. right? even those that that universities provide as online master's programs right the, the biggest difference really is the the motivation profile of the students coming in right whereas MOOCs were somewhat of a social media phenomenon people came to them to see what is it like to take a course from Cornell from, from famous professors um, when you look at Uh, master's programs people tend to go there because they seek the the credential Mm -hmm. and the value it brings on the job market.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay that's yeah that's super that's super helpful and what are the what are some of the universities that led the charge on this? I assume Stanford since it's techie and it seems like the kind of thing that they would be into but and because you were there so I'm just going to (laughs) assume but what are the I guess can you just I, I hate to ask about the history of it but how does how did the sort of history of this unfold? Again, just because it's such an interesting area right. and folks might not know. Right. Um, it depends a little mm. bit on how far back you want to go.
0: And uh, you know, distance learning is nothing new mm. by any means. Universities used to mail out, and still do, mail out materials to students in remote places so they can go through the, ma- the materials, send back their homeworks via mail. Mm. Um, uh, and that has evolved fast. Uh, many people point to MIT OpenCourseWare as an example of a uh, university very early on putting materials online. However, mm. it wasn't organized as a course with assessments, with grading, um, and with a certificate at the end. Right? Okay. It was, here are some lectures that are recorded. Um, you may use them. Here are some materials that come with them. But there wasn't a, a course shell around it that provided feedback. Um, and that's really where, where MOOCs came in, uh, in in the format that that most of peop, most people are aware of, uh, this very large scale uh, format uh, that that started at Stanford and then was quickly picked up by mm-hmm. MIT and Harvard okay. that created um, the edX platform.
1: Okay, cool. All right, so now I'll now I'll know. Um, I'll feel less uninformed. So how do you? I mean. <clears throat> I mean, one thing you know. One thing that we're interested in thinking about in the BCTR is sort of community stakeholders and community groups. And so, I guess here you can see. So, universities could be a group, or university administrators, faculty who are interested in engaging in this, students, um, and then folks like yourself who are interested in improving these courses or assessing these courses. How? How do, you, how do you think about engaging with those different groups, and what are some of the opportunities and mm-hmm. some of the tensions there? Yeah.
0: I've had uh, good success engaging with different groups. I, my research really depends on engaging with groups mm-hmm. outside because these courses reach people outside. The courses are produced by various entities, various universities. Um, and so it, it's not me who, who produces all of those courses that I study, um, but it, it relies on those partnerships. And that includes uh, partnerships with um, institutions, other universities, instructors, particular instructors who have very popular courses that draw a lot of students, uh, but also organizations like um, code.org, mm-hmm. uh, like um, the the 4-H school system here, um, like uh, eCornell, uh, and several others that, um, that the lab has partnered with and is partnering with to better understand um, how The content shapes who comes to courses, how the content is serving people uh, who are going through the courses, and how, um, in particular in those examples, how it uh, is potentially more effective for some groups of students and other groups of students, drawing more on some groups than other groups, right? This is with particular respect to Mm. um, increasing, broadening diversity in STEM and how you can present STEM learning materials, STEM courses, in a way that um, encourages women and underrepresented minorities in the field to, to go for it, mm. right? To not, to not feel afraid that it might be an environment that is, that is chilly or that uh, is not respectful, one which they cannot learn as well, but that it is an environment that really is there for everybody, right? That, uh, that it was designed for everybody to be equally successful in the environment.
1: Yeah. Cool. And what, what would you say, if you could just think about one, and it may be mm-hmm. that there isn't one specific one, but what do you see as kind of the key tension that can come up in, in working with these various stakeholders? Yeah. One
0: um, that can come up, I've, I've fortunately seen it not come up too many times, is around uh, data sharing, collaboration, mm. and experimentation in particular. Mm-hmm. One of the best ways to understand what works is by trying out a few different ways. Uh, what that requires, though, is acknowledging that we don't know what actually works, and that's hard. Right? We, we feel like we, we have so much intuition for what works. We've all done a lot of education, and uh, it, it seems like it should be obvious that this is better than that. But very often that turns out to be not right. We, mm-hmm. Our intuitions tend to be quite wrong when it comes to education and what works for learning, really. Uh, and so acknowledging that, and then being open to testing different uh, different ways of teaching, different ways of presenting course materials in order to really understand what works for whom. Not mm-hmm. just on average, mm-hmm. but what works for different groups mm-hmm. of students uh, who have had different backgrounds coming to the learning materials. Some have a background in, that's more in mathematics, some have a background that's more in, in history, and, and that can shape the way that one should present course materials to students for them to really connect it to what they know and care about.
1: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And so do you, do you ever do experiments where you look not just at, I mean, it, it sounds like you're interested in the distribution in addition to the mean, but do you ever think about how those materials affect class composition going forward? Or is, is that something that you're interested in? Or? Yeah,
0: absolutely. So okay. we've done, um, uh, initially we've done a number of studies that looked at once students are inside of the class, what are effective strategies for supporting them to continue through the class? Uh, and we found some effective strategies that that can scale to some extent, but we're also seeing the limits of scalability of some strategies. Once you take it from hmm. two, three courses to two hundred and fifty courses, what we what we're now looking at more and more is who even enters the course, right? Yeah. The the participation in the course as an important factor, because some of the the um, the gaps we're seeing there or the distributions we're seeing there do mirror what we see in traditional institutions of mm-hmm. higher education mm-hmm. quite well. Um, and that's partly because of the social norms that are in place. Um, and partly because perhaps the courses, the way that they're presented do not try actively to go against those social norms yep. and redefine them and encourage populations who are underrepresented in those domains to to come in and give it a try. Right. And so uh, we're going all the way back to when students first learn about these courses to advertising, the number of studies using Facebook advertising, mm-hmm. where we randomly vary the, um, the images and the text that is shown, for example, focusing more on the career that it might lead to or the skills that one might pick up on, um, or who's shown as role models in the imagery uh, of the advertising and looking at the effects that has on who comes, clicks through into the course We're looking at the enrollment page. Once you get to the page of the course and you you have that enrollment button there that you may or may not click on, what are the cues on the page itself that make certain groups of people more or less likely to want to enroll in the course? Um, And we're finding some very interesting and very strong patterns between what is shown on these pages and the enrollment patterns of the the course, the distributions that we're seeing. Uh, One example is the number of hours that a course um, advertises that it would take per week, Mm. right? Some courses require 10, 14 hours per week, pretty intensive courses. Other courses only provide, uh, require three or so hours. That has a strong effect, uh, well, it's strongly correlated, for now, we haven't manipulated yet, Mm. strongly correlated with how many people from less developed countries enroll. Uh More people enroll from less developed countries if the course is more demanding. And interestingly, it it correlates strongly with how many women enroll in the course. The ratio is lower. Fewer women proportionally enroll in courses that have higher amounts of weekly effort, Hmm. right? Which may be consistent with some of the work that has been done around applications for for jobs and requirements that are put out by companies, where women have been shown to be more uh, vigilant for what is asked for in the in the job description, and they tend to not apply as much for co- for jobs that uh, that they don't fulfill most of the requirements for. Mm-hmm. Whereas men seem to be more willing to just gloss over that and apply anyway. So perhaps this might be a similar kind of psychological process of. Uh, judging carefully how much commitment they are willing to make for a course
1: okay cool so so that seems like maybe one of the big findings what are what are another one or two sort of things that you would want everybody to know about what you've found in your work so far yeah i mean one one of the
0: things that I would everybody would want to know somewhat independent of my work is that there are more than ever. Uh, opportunities out there to to gain access to education Mm. right it Mm -hmm. is it is really a a very special time uh, to to go out and and seek out what what it is that you are interested in Uh, lots of providers provide very cost-effective ways of learning different uh, topics from um, you know from math to poetry to uh, pottery I mean it's 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 all there it's actually quite interesting to see how instructors come up with innovative ways to teach the kinds of things you think you really have to have a hands-on experience to learn right. um, by, by by coming with simulations, by coming with group projects, uh, facilitating discussions around around questions. So, uh, I would encourage everybody to to go out there and, and sort of use the Google and try and find some of these uh, experiences out there. Now, particularly uh, in, in my work, what we're seeing is that um, that uh, some of the the, the students. Do not do the kinds of things that are most effective for them for learning, mm. and I think this goes back to the point about what really is effective for learning is somewhat counterintuitive sometimes. Right, uh, the things that are easiest um, to, to do as a learner are often the ones that are the least effective for learning. Right? There's research that shows that the the right m- emotion to feel while you're learning is frustration. Mm. Right, and and I, I'm most reminded of that when I teach courses and, and students are frustrated. And I, I constantly tell them, look, that is the emotion that you need to be feeling in order to learn. Right? If you're happy, you're probably not learning that much. Right? Mm. It's frustration and you've got the aha moment and you feel very satisfied. Right? But to get to that point, you have to feel some frustration first. Um, and so that, that, that involves doing assessments. Mm. Right? Very few students who come into these online courses uh, do the assessments. They, they watch the videos. Which are which are fun to watch often because they're well produced, um, but just by watching the videos, uh, we don't learn that much. Right, mm-hmm. learning is really a, a an active process, and uh, challenging oneself, uh, testing oneself is an important part of that. And so, uh, when we look at the data of what it is that students are doing in the environment, it's it's usually a fraction that a small fraction that, that engages in all those activities that mm. as a researcher, we, I would say that is what really promotes the learning. It's not so much the, the video watching alone. Um, that's one piece. The other piece is that um, we're seeing interventions such as those that um, help students with planning, and that and those that um, help students connect the course to their values and why they're really taking it uh, work in in some courses for some groups of people. Um, for example, uh, an activity that asks students to write about how taking this course connects to what's most important to them. Mm. Right. For example, um, uh, you know, there's, there's an example of somebody. Uh, this was a person in India who, who wrote that. They're taking this course to get a better job, so they can spend more time with their family. Hmm. Right. So it, it wasn't just about getting the certificate. No, it, it, he he was able to connect it to this much more important value to him, which was spending time with family. Right. right. And that can be quite motivating. And so we're seeing that in uh in courses that that have global gaps, where the uh, where people in less developed countries tend to underperform in the courses compared to people in more developed countries have mm-hmm. lower completion rates. That those kinds of interventions can help people in less developed countries perform uh, perform at a, at a higher level, increase their completion rates, um, and so these these little activities uh, can be quite effective. But what we still don't know is under what conditions they really are effective. Right? We, we're starting to to, uh, to 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 understand when exactly it will be. But uh, what we found in the most recent set of studies, one of the largest. Uh, educational experiments done in, in, in history is that if you look across 250 different contexts each one is a separate course mm. it it turns out to be quite hard to predict that if you'd still make, you tell know, me I will create a course on this topic will this thing work for me who's it gonna work for it's very hard to predict under what conditions it really will work and that's what we're currently the frontier that we're currently at is learning better the contextual factors that matter for when different kinds of interventions will work. They are really not silver bullets, right? right. Um, some of these these nudges, um, mm-hmm. they, they, they work under, under certain conditions. And they can work quite well. They can work temporarily, right? But to, to produce lasting changes and understanding of the context is really important. An understanding of where students are at and meeting them where they are at and helping them out with uh, overcoming the challenges that they are facing is, is critical.
1: Great. Well, I, that is actually an excellent stopping point, I think. Um, so thanks so much for coming to talk to us. Um, I feel like I learned a lot. Um, and yeah, the I mean, the areas you're working in seem tremendously important and really relevant for our audience. So thanks for coming and talking to us. And um, thanks for joining us on doing translational research. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Chris.
0: For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner
1: Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.